crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. On June 5th, 1986, a seemingly healthy man named Bruce Nickel came home from work with a throbbing headache. He did what most of us do. He went to his kitchen, where he and his wife, Stella, kept their painkillers and grabbed some headache medicine. It was a pretty bad headache, so Bruce took four pills at once and waited for the drug to kick in. He watched a little TV, went for a short walk near his home in Auburn, Washington, and then called out to his wife. Babe, he said, I feel like I'm going to pass out. And then he did pass out. He was dead a few hours later. Less than a week later, on July 11th, a 40-year-old mother of two woke up for a job at a bank near Seattle, Washington. Sue Snow felt fine, but she had a morning routine that included popping a couple of Excedrin because it contained caffeine and it was akin to her morning coffee. Fifteen minutes later, her 15-year-old daughter found her sprawled on the bathroom floor. I realized something was wrong. Her eyes were open and her they were rolled sort of back and her fingers were very stiff and she looked terrified. She looked very scared. Like Bruce, Sue Snow never regained consciousness and died within hours. Now, Bruce Nickel was a recovering alcoholic in his 50s, not exactly the pinnacle of health. No toxicology screen was done, so the medical examiner ruled the death natural. Official cause? Pulmonary emphysema. Sue Snow's death triggered some additional tests. Turned out, Sue had died of acute cyanide poisoning. Also turned out that she and Bruce Nickel had taken pills from the same lot number, sparking a roundup of all of those pills. Excedrin's parent company, Bristol-Myers, sprang into action, pulling all Excedrin capsules from store shelves across the country and warning people not to use any they had already bought. A warning is going out tonight to all Americans. Stop taking extra-strength Excedrin capsules until further notice. The Food and Drug Administration issued that alert because in Seattle, the FDA has found cyanide in a second bottle of capsules. For much of the country, this felt like a horrible case of deja vu because it wasn't the first time people had dropped dead from using an over-the-counter painkiller. To fully understand these two deaths from 1986 and to grasp how authorities caught the killer in those cases, we first have to revisit one of the most panic-inducing consumer stories in history, which was four years earlier in 1982 when seven other strangers died in Chicago. We'll start that story right after this. Today's story begins on a crisp fall morning, a Wednesday, in 1982. 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up for school but felt a cold coming on. The seventh grader told her parents she felt crummy, and they gave her permission to stay home from school. Mary went to the bathroom upstairs and took an extra-strength Tylenol to ease her symptoms. 
Her father, in his first floor bedroom, heard a loud thud, then ran upstairs to find his daughter sprawled on the bathroom floor. Around the same time on the other side of town, Adam Janice also woke up feeling ill. The 27-year-old decided he was too sick to work, so he took the day off as supervisor of the Elk Grove Village Post Office. He swung by a pharmacy to get some medicine, made lunch for his young children, and popped two Tylenol. Then he, too, collapsed. Both Mary and Adam would be rushed to a nearby hospital, where each would be pronounced dead. The two were just the beginning of a wave of victims in a case that terrified the country, sparked dozens of copycats, and led to new FDA regulations still in place today. Uh, we've been receiving calls uh, about once every 15 seconds. At Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, we only have three poison lines, and they're lit up constantly ever since yesterday morning. When Mary and Adam both dropped dead September 29, 1982, no one at first made any connection between the cases. Despite Adam's age, the medics who arrived assumed he had had a heart attack. And Mary's death was harder to explain, but she'd woken up feeling crummy, so surely it was related to that, right? An autopsy was ordered, but the doctors already assumed the ruling would come back as something natural. A heart attack, maybe, or a stroke. As weird as it sounds, those things can happen to 12-year-olds, too. After hearing that Adam collapsed, his whole family rushed to the Northwest Community Hospital, where doctors tried in vain to revive him. Thomas Kim, the medical director of the intensive care unit, shook hands with Adam's younger brother, 25-year-old Stanley. Kim offered his condolences before signing off on the death being caused by a heart attack. As Kim wrapped up his shift later in the day, he got jarring news. Stanley Janice, the brother he had just talked to a few hours earlier, had been rushed to the hospital. So had Stanley's 19-year-old wife, Teresa. Kim had seen both of them earlier, and they were upset, of course, but clearly healthy. Teresa had complained of a headache, and Stanley had some chronic back pain, but neither was severe. Stanley died soon after arriving. By the end of the day, Teresa was barely clinging to life. Kim was flummoxed. What the hell was going on here? He paced his office, turning the cases over in his mind. Then it hit him. Just before each of these people collapsed, they complained of abdominal pain and dizziness. Then their hearts stopped. These were symptoms of potassium cyanide poisoning. Kim ran some blood tests and confirmed his hunch. He had figured out the what, but he still had no clue about the why or the how. Meanwhile... People kept dying. Name is uh, Jack Eliason, and my sister was uh, Mary McFarlane. This is from an Associated Press interview. One night as she was working, she got a headache, went in the back room and had, uh, I don't know how many Tylenol, within minutes she was on the floor. Another woman named Mary Reiner was recovering from giving birth to her fourth child. The baby boy was literally just five days old, and Mary must have been a tough woman because she went grocery shopping that day with her mother-in-law. Here's one of Mary's daughters quoted in a documentary. In 1982, I was eight years old, and my mom had just gotten back from the maternity ward, went to the grocery store, and bought Tylenol from the grocery store that was doctor's orders. And the next thing I knew, I just saw my mom go out on a stretcher from my upstairs window, and that was the last that I saw her. Investigators scrambled to find some link between the victims. 
Mary Kellerman was a seventh grader at Adams Junior High in Schaumburg. She loved babysitting and horseback riding, and based on her obituary, was an only child. She didn't know any of the other victims, and neither did her parents. The Janices were connected, of course, but only to each other. Adam was married with two young children in Arlington Heights. His brother Stanley and his wife had been married less than a year. Mary McFarland was a single mother with two young sons and a steady job at Illinois Bell. She actually took the Tylenol while at work and collapsed in front of her co-workers. Mary Reiner was a stay-at-home mom with a loving husband named Ed. She liked playing softball and the drums, was an amazing cook, especially of Irish food, a nod to her ancestry, and she loved being a mom. It took 12 hours between the time the first body fell and when authorities realized that Tylenol was the only common denominator. And the connection wasn't at first made by a doctor. Two firefighters had been listening like weirdos to their emergency radios on their day off, and they'd noticed that dispatchers were taking calls about people collapsing all over the city. They'd also noticed that, at least in the Kellerman and Janice cases, emergency responders happened to mention that the victims had taken Tylenol. One firefighter said to the other, This is a wild stab, but maybe it's Tylenol. That theory reached Dr. Kim, and the next day, the whole world knew that the -the over-the-counter pill meant to kill pain was actually killing people. Five people are now dead, one in critical condition after taking extra-strength Tylenol. Bottles of the pills with the serial number MC2880 are being recalled. This was explosive. Inside of random Tylenol bottles throughout Chicago were capsules that looked just a little bit different than the others. The capsules, which had powdered medicine inside, had been carefully split open, refilled with poison, and then sealed again. You had to really be paying attention to see that the markings on the outside of the capsules were slightly misaligned, and the powder inside was brown, not white. News reporters got the message out quickly. Don't take any Tylenol extra strength for the time being until you hear otherwise. Cyanide-laced capsules linked to area deaths, read a jump head from the Chicago Tribune. A sidebar reported, stores around nation pull Tylenol capsules. Here's another headline that likely scared the hell out of people. Cyanide, deadly just to touch. And the warnings weren't just in Chicago. Some of the bottles from the affected shipment have been found in Florida. Eckerd Drug Stores and Clearwater reports that they pulled them off the shelf within hours of hearing about the potentially deadly pills. Tylenol was produced by McNeil Consumer Products Company, which fell under the umbrella of Johnson & Johnson, a Cincinnati-based company that was facing a public relations nightmare that they never could have predicted. They didn't know what the hell was happening. They checked the production line, which was made a lot easier by their practice of saving a random sample of pills from every lot produced. The samples were clean, meaning that the cyanide wasn't being added during production. Tylenol itself was not killing people. Someone had either bought or stolen bottles from individual stores, tampered with the product, then put it back on the shelf for someone to buy. By morning, there had been five deaths, and Teresa Janice was on life support. On Friday, October 1st, she officially became victim number six. That same evening, 35-year-old Paula Prince was supposed to meet her sister for dinner, but she hadn't shown up. At first, her sister assumed she was just running late, but after a while, she started to get worried. 
She called Paula's home number, and no one answered. Then she called the police. Paula, a flight attendant, had last been seen after working a flight from Las Vegas to O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. On her way home from the airport, she stopped at a Walgreens at about 9.30 Wednesday night. A surveillance camera captured her buying a bottle of Tylenol. Police had to piece together what happened next from the crime scene. It appeared that after Paula got home, she went to the bathroom to start taking off her makeup as she readied for bed. Judging by the open Tylenol bottle on the vanity, she'd popped a pill or two. An investigator later said, quote, by the time she got to the threshold of the door, she was dead, end quote. She probably took the medicine the night she had bought it, which was Wednesday, but no one knew she was dead until two days later. She was victim number seven. People were terrorized. They didn't know what product they had in their home that could possibly be lethal if they ingested it. The panic continued. Police searched desperately for a culprit. It seemed like it shouldn't be too tough either. I mean, they found surveillance images of Paula buying the Tylenol. Surely they'd be able to find images of someone planting the bottle there to begin with, right? But before authorities could really focus on that, the deaths had to stop. With a body count linked to cyanide-laced Tylenol at seven, companies involved with making Tylenol were just as panicked as the public. Johnson & Johnson pulled together a public relations team that included Alan Hilberg, a consultant. We didn't have a crisis plan. This is Hilberg later giving a talk about how Johnson & Johnson handled things at the time. We created a strategy literally over, you know, 36 hours that said our first responsibility is to those who use the products. So pulling the products off the shelf was was an easy one. You know, next come employees, next come the communities in which we, you know, our employees live. And our responsibility, our final responsibility is to, is to stockholders. So we pulled all the Tylenol off the shelf simply because it was the right thing to do. It was also an expensive thing to do. So we pulled 330 million tablets off the shelf. We went from 34% market share to zero overnight. Store shelves were cleared of the medicine. People who'd already bought some were warned. Anyone who recently purchased Tylenol capsules in Westchester County is being asked to perhaps look at them. Certainly don't take those capsules, but look at them. If you see a capsule where the printing is out of line, where Tylenol doesn't go straight through but is out of line, or perhaps where there is brown material in the white section of the capsule, Contact the FDA regional office or take the capsules back to the store. The Federal Food and Drug Administration worked around the clock trying to figure this thing out. Investigators say they are searching for, quote, a madman. Cyanide is a chemical compound that can be produced naturally by bacteria, fungi, and algae. Substantial amounts can be found in some seeds and fruit stones. But those foods are still safe to eat. Cyanide on its own isn't automatically deadly, but there are deadly forms of it like potassium cyanide, which was found in each of the Chicago victims. Exposure to that stuff leads to poisoning with symptoms like headaches, dizziness, and vomiting. It can cause seizures and slow your heart rate. Eventually, it stops your heart altogether. In acute cases, all of the symptoms are sped up. The victims were doomed the second the gelatin casing on those Tylenol capsules dissolved. And tracking cyanide is tough. 
because it is commonly sold and used for non-homicidal purposes. Cyanide is available. It is used by jewelers and photographers. It is also used as an insecticide and for electroplating. Many other poisons are also available, many of them sold right over the counter in hardware stores. Despite the nationwide panic, without any initial suspects and Tylenol pulled from the shelves, the story started petering out. And then the drug makers got a letter. It began, quote, Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures, end quote. Then the letter writer got to the point by demanding a million dollars wired to a specific Chicago-based bank account. In exchange for the money, the killings would stop. At first, the letter was largely dismissed as a hoax. For starters, it was incredibly easy for police to track the bank account holder. What idiot would kill people and then send a letter to police that straight up gave away their identity? The account holder was a guy named Frederick McKayhee, and the account itself had actually been closed. McKayhee voluntarily came in for questioning, and police were pretty well satisfied he had nothing to do with either the extortion letter or the poisonings. But he did lead them down a pretty interesting path. Authorities today stepped up their search for the man accused of demanding a million dollars from the makers of Tylenol to prevent further murders. This part gets complicated, so I'll try to keep things as clear as possible. McKayhee had owned a business in Chicago called Lakeside Travel. In April 1982, the business was struggling. Paychecks to 18 employees bounced. That pissed people off. Among the pissed off people was an employee named Nancy Richardson. She was a bookkeeper. Her paycheck had been for $512, which she cashed at a currency exchange, which in turn had filed a lawsuit against her a few months after the check was returned for insufficient funds. Turns out, people don't like bounced checks. Lakeside's workers tried to recoup their pay by filing a claim with the Illinois Department of Labor. Nancy Richardson was especially aggressive on this front. She argued that if the business accounts were drained, then her former boss's personal accounts should cover the wages. She got into an argument with McKayhee about it. Then her husband, Robert Richardson, got in an argument with McKayhee too. McKayhee threatened to fire Nancy. It was all very ugly. So when McKayhee was dragged in for questioning about an extortion letter tied to one of his bank accounts, the Richardsons came pretty quickly to mind. And it turns out the couple was a bit suspicious. For starters, they were using aliases. Their names weren't Nancy and Robert Richardson. Really, they were James and Leanne Lewis. In the early 1970s, they'd run an accounting firm called JNL Business Tax Service. We don't know much about their lives then, except that a five-year-old daughter named Tony died in 1974, and that they liked to use aliases. They also went by the surnames Wagner and Scott, among others. I mean, they had bounced from one job to another, changing names more often than most people change the oil in their cars. Once authorities started looking at McKayhee, they started looking for the Richardsons, who had already left Chicago for New York. Now remember, the Richardsons in reality are the Lewises. I'll call them by their real name instead. Investigators found out James Lewis lived in Kansas City at some point, 
and had had run-ins with police, so they asked for his fingerprints. That's how they'd learned he had previously been charged with murder. This is wild. In 1978, a 72-year-old man named Raymond West went missing for three weeks before he was found, decomposed with his legs removed in his own attic. Lewis had been this man's accountant, and during the weeks West was missing, acted suspiciously enough that he drew police attention. The cops arrested Lewis and searched his home and found some pretty damning evidence, including proof that Lewis had forged a check for $5,000 from one of West's accounts. But get this, the murder case was riddled with technical mistakes. The grand jury indictment didn't use the word felonious, which for some reason made it invalid. Then a judge ruled that police had searched Lewis's home improperly and failed to read him his rights. And finally, the dismemberment and decomposition made it tough to tell exactly how the old man had been killed, so Lewis got off on technicalities. From a Kansas City Times report in 1979, the evidence against Lewis was substantial. There was the forged check, Lewis had made contradictory statements to police, and detectives even found ropes and overhand knots in Lewis's station wagon that matched the ropes and knots hanging from a rafter in the victim's attic. But the technicalities meant that evidence wasn't admissible, and the prosecution had no case. That's why Lewis was free, and why he was partial to using aliases. Now, if the Richardsons slash Lewises thought bailing for New York would protect them from the police, they were wrong. Unlike the death of Raymond West, this whole Tylenol poisoning thing was a nationwide story. So the manhunt was nationwide, too. On December 13th, 1982, James Lewis was arrested inside of a New York City public library where he was reading the Chicago papers to keep tabs on the Tylenol investigation. James Lewis and his wife were picked up in an extortion plot against Johnson & Johnson. Lewis admitted to the extortion attempt, but he denied having anything to do with the killings. And he denied that his wife had anything to do with either. Here's where I'm honestly a little confused. Even though it looks like Lewis, at minimum, had a hand in dismembering Raymond West back in 1978, officials were still leaning toward the letter being a hoax. But then, James Lewis said something interesting. Here's an Associated Press report. He gave investigators a detailed account of how someone could buy medicine, use a special method to add cyanide to the capsules, and return them to store shelves. The Kansas City Times also reported that Lewis was partner in an import scheme with an Indian-born pharmacist who taught Lewis how to make pills and capsules. Police apparently tried to build a murder case against Lewis. I'm not entirely sure why charges were never filed. I mean, the circumstantial evidence is pretty damning. But for whatever reason, the best the feds managed was an indictment for the extortion. They didn't even try to charge him with that 1978 murder, even though they now had his fingerprint at the crime scene. They only nailed him on extortion, for which Lewis spent 12 years in prison. This is a Chicago TV reporter named Paul Hogan in 1986. James Lewis has been considered a prime suspect in the Chicago Tylenol murders since the crimes were committed over three years ago. First, because he wrote an extortion letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding a million dollars to stop the poisonings. And second, because he told federal investigators after his arrest that he thought he knew how the killer loaded Tylenol capsules with cyanide. Since his conviction, Lewis has been held in the federal lockup in Chicago. 
though his wife, Leanne, was arrested with him when they were found hiding out in a New York transient hotel, she was never charged with the extortion. Now, this is one of those heartbreaking and infuriating cases in which there's no real ending. No one has ever replaced Lewis as the main suspect. The feds tried to come at it a few different ways. They even searched his home in 2009. Federal authorities may have a fresh lead in the fatal 1982 Tylenol poisonings. On Wednesday, agents spent several hours at the Boston home of a man linked to the deaths of seven Chicago-area people who took cyanide-laced pills. Investigators wouldn't say exactly what brought them here, but they loaded several boxes into a truck before leaving the area. Talk of an indictment surfaced again in 2012, but nothing ever came of it. To this day, the case remains officially unsolved. But while the seven Chicago cases don't have an ending, the broader story continued. For starters, Johnson & Johnson quickly changed how it packaged its pills. The FDA eventually required all over-the-counter medicines to be sold in tamper-evident packaging. Here's a cheesy PSA. Here are some of the types of containers that qualify as tamper-resistant. Blister packs. Shrink seals. Sometimes coupled with these are bottle seals. Paper or foil seals the mouth of the bottle under the cap. Meanwhile, Congress passed what had been nicknamed the Tylenol Bill, which made it a federal offense to tamper with consumer products. That was the good news portion of this good news, bad news scenario. The bad news is that the panic wasn't over. There were a smattering of false confessions and copycats around the country. A story from October 1982 by the United Press International gave a rundown that would be hilarious if, you know, people's lives weren't at stake. A 20-year-old disgruntled hospital employee named Jerome Howard was arrested after FBI officials said he threatened to poison patients with laced Tylenol unless he was paid $8,000. He claimed credit for the Chicago-area killings, but authorities say that was a lie. Another man, Jerome Omen of Chicago, got pissed that a ham he had bought was spoiled, so he claimed he was the Tylenol killer in hopes of getting a phone operator to give him the unlisted number of the Dubuque Packing Company, which sold him the ham. He was charged with disorderly conduct and cleared as the killer. An investigator said Omen was just very upset over a ham not being up to par. An anonymous letter sent to a newspaper in DeKalb County, Illinois, claimed that cyanide had been placed in one gallon of apple cider from a specific orchard. So, authorities warned not to drink cider from that orchard. No tainted gallon was ever found. And in Sheridan, Wyoming, 19-year-old J. Adam Mitchell dropped dead of cyanide poisoning, though it was never formally linked to Tylenol, and investigators never found a connection to the Chicago cases. By 1986... When it started to become painfully clear that whoever poisoned Chicago had gotten away with it, another copycat surfaced in New York. 23-year-old Diane Ellsroth died after taking two capsules from a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol at a friend's house in Bronxville. Authorities searched nearby stores and found another tainted bottle as well. Once again, 
Tainted Tylenol was on front pages nationwide. Investigators were briefly sidetracked when three suspects arrested in another case were found with a copy of an extortion letter addressed to the Bronxville Police Department. The letter demanded $2 million to halt the Tylenol tamperings, but investigators are convinced the group had nothing to do with the poisoning. They were also convinced the mini-outbreak had nothing to do with the one four years earlier. Like Chicago, that case is unsolved which made people wonder when similar deaths started in Seattle, would another killer walk free? Authorities failed to solve the Chicago and New York poisonings, which was a big ego blow that made them all the more determined to figure out what happened to Bruce Nickel and Sue Snow, the two Excedrin takers from the top of the episode. Now, when it happened, Bruce's death didn't make headlines or even draw much notice. But a week later, Sue's did. When Janet Miller opened Sue Snow's chest cavity, she noticed the faint smell of bitter almonds. It was a clue that cyanide was present and a clue that under different circumstances might have gone undetected. You probably recognize the voice. That's the late, great Peter Thomas, narrator of Forensic Files. That this case was on an episode of Forensic Files should tell you something. Forensic Files is legendary in the true crime world. It ran for 14 seasons and, for better or worse, basically invented the true crime science TV genre. But back to the case. It was a tragedy. Then, a medical mystery. One which sent shockwaves throughout the world. On the show, Janet Miller said the smell of bitter almond is... Such a distinct odor. It's like when you're driving down the road and you smell skunk. That's a very distinct odor, and you say, oh, a skunk was near here. It just leaves an impression in your brain that, that you don't forget. After the test confirmed cyanide poisoning, authorities had to figure out how it got in her system. That's when Sue's twin sister, Sarah, noticed something in Sue's house. When we got there, I went to the kitchen to get her Excedrin to take. And it was capsules. And she never took capsules. Sue was recently married. Her husband, Paul Webking, had been married three times before. He was a pretty gruff guy, a trucker, and suspicion fell on him straight away. It didn't help that he married a fifth time not long after Sue died. He was still being investigated when Stella Nickel contacted police and said, Hey, my husband died a week earlier than Sue, and he'd taken Excedrin as well. She brought in that bottle, plus one other, and sure enough, some of the capsules had indeed been tampered with. And Paul Webking had no connection with the Nichols at all. Authorities got worried. Good God, maybe there's another random killer out there. Just like in Chicago, just like in New York. So they pulled all Excedrin from the shelves and found tainted capsules inside two more bottles. Each of the capsules contained 700 milligrams of cyanide, which is four times the amount you need to kill an average human. When the FBI analyzed the cyanide more closely, they noticed that some tiny foreign particles were mixed in with it. Scientists analyzed it and determined it was algae killer, like the type you'd use in a fish tank. They didn't know what that meant, but they made note. Stella Nickel, meanwhile, was ruffling feathers. She was certain her husband had been murdered, and by golly, she wanted answers. Stella had had a rocky start in life, giving birth to a daughter named Cynthia when she was 16. 
When Bruce died, Stella was 40 and had stayed out of trouble for a while, but in her 20s, she had been arrested several times for fraud in 1968, for assault in 1969, for forgery in 1971. She was divorced when she met Bruce, and the two hit it off right away. They both liked to party, and Stella was a bar hopper, so Bruce's hard drinking was just fine by her. After they married, though, Bruce decided to clean up his act. He entered rehab and quit drinking. Stella was less than pleased to lose her drinking buddy and began complaining bitterly about Bruce to her now-grown daughter, nicknamed Cindy. She told Cindy that Bruce had become a bore. And he just wanted to putter around the house and work on their mobile home and, uh, you know, ride their Goldwing uh, motorcycles. This is true crime author Greg Olson, who's been on several TV shows talking about this case. That's all he wanted to do, you know, call his friends on the CB. I mean, that was their culture. That was their life. And Stella wanted nightlife. In the fall of 1985, so a good eight or nine months before Bruce died, Stella had taken out a $40,000 life insurance policy on Bruce. This was his second policy. He had another one for $31,000, though that amount would be upped by $105,000 if he died accidentally. Stella wasn't eligible for that extra amount because Bruce's cause of death was supposedly natural. When police realized how much money rested on Bruce's death being unnatural, they began to get curious. Because here's the thing. What happened in Chicago is incredibly rare. Most of the time, people aren't murdered at random. They're murdered by people they know. It struck investigators that of the five tainted Excedrin bottles discovered in Washington state, two had been bought by Stella Nichol. Stella asked the coroner's office to reclassify Bruce's death, after which authorities suggested she take a polygraph. She said, no thanks. They said, are you sure? Don't you want to clear your name? Don't you want to be exonerated? And she would always say, I'm sick. I don't feel good. You know, I love Bruce too much. It'll hurt, you know, too much to relive it. You're making me live his death all over again. But eventually, investigators wore down. Stella took a polygraph and failed. And that's apparently when her daughter decided to bail. She told police that her mom had not only complained about Bruce Nickel for five years, but she had talked at length about killing him. Oh, and by the way, Cindy added, my mom has long been fascinated by the 1982 Tylenol deaths. The way Stella saw it, those had been the perfect crime. And the New York copycat just a couple of months before Bruce died solidified it. Police zeroed in on Stella looking for evidence. It wasn't hard to find. Stella had gone to the library to look up effective poisons. Detectives pulled those books and found Stella's fingerprints all over the C-section, as in C is for cyanide. And there was more. The signature on Bruce's latest life insurance policy didn't match his known samples. It had been forged. Stella had written a letter to a creditor in which she'd said she'd been having marital problems, but they were about over and Bruce would no longer be around. She wrote that five days before he died. And finally, the detail that put the case in Peter Thomas's crosshairs, those tiny foreign particles found in the cyanide analyzed from the tainted Excedrin bottles had been the exact brand of algicide that Stella had bought for her fish tanks at home. Ground the cyanide in the same bowl she used earlier to grind the algicide tablets for her aquarium. But she neglected to wash the bowl before grinding the cyanide. 
she never suspected that the tiny green algaecide crystals would mix with the cyanide and lead to her capture. Stella Nickel had gotten away with murder. With a pulmonary emphysema diagnosis, she was free and clear and $71,000 richer. But that wasn't enough for her. She wanted the $100,000 she would get if her husband's death hadn't been natural. So she tampered with five bottles in all, two in her home and three on store shelves. Sue Snow just happened to buy one of those three. She was a completely innocent victim in a greedy woman's scheme. Stella would have straight up gotten away with both murders had she just kept quiet. But instead, she asked the coroner to reclassify her husband's death. Now, this is where everything ties back together. Because of the Tylenol deaths in 1982 and the law change that came after them, Stella wasn't charged with the usual state-level murder charges. She faced federal charges, becoming the first person ever to be convicted of violating the Federal Anti-Tampering Act. She went on trial in 1988, at which her own daughter testified against her. The jury deliberated almost five days before finding Stella guilty. She's now living in a federal prison in Dublin, California, having received two 90-year sentences, one for each of her victims. I'm sure it was a bitter pill indeed. For this episode, I started by reviewing research on the 1982 murders that I'd already done for a book I co-wrote a few years ago, but then I went far deeper by wrapping in the 1986 deaths, which likely wouldn't have happened had the 82 murders not gone unsolved. My main sources were contemporary newspaper stories and TV newscasts, plus retrospectives on the History Channel and CNN. People Magazine had a super helpful story that ran in 1988 as well. And then, of course, there was the Forensic Files episode. And for the record, I will forever be floored that Steve Tipton did not know Forensic Files when his husband literally hosts one of the most popular true crime podcasts in the country. This is like True Crime 101, people. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 